This morning, uh, we have uh, one of our interns here at the church, Joe Donaldson, is going to preach for us. And um, I'm excited about this uh, as uh, we have actually... Um, five interns here at the church that are preparing to become pastors. And uh, one of the things that is greatly encouraging to me about the process that they go through is that um, I had to go through the same process. And I remember the pastor that mentored me um, taught me how to preach and had me preach uh, at the church. And it was part of the way that uh, the Lord used to build me up. And it's actually a great opportunity for us as uh, the congregation of the saints to uh, build others up for the proclamation of the gospel. So we're excited to have Joe come and preach for us today. This is his first time, actually, to, uh, to preach at a church. And um, uh, I've been reviewing his sermon with him this week, and we're excited to uh, hear the word of the Lord from him. So let us hear our uh, scripture passages this morning. Our Old Testament reading is Daniel 3, 24 through 30. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors... Did we not cast three men bound in the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no other god who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our New Testament reading comes from Acts 16, verses 16 through 24. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that the hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them. And the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safe, safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you bow your heads with me as we pray? Gracious and Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much for this time. I thank you that you call us to worship. 
I thank you that you call us to confess our sins. You call us to humble ourselves before you. But Lord, in your mercy, you, you pick our heads back up. You forgive the sins that we have committed by the blood of Christ. And you call us into fellowship. And then you send us, Lord. You encourage us, you give us your word, and you open it to us. So would you please do that today by your spirit? Lord, would everyone here be encouraged and uplifted to the advance of your kingdom? Praise things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, first question. Who is your real enemy? That's an important question that we must all answer as we think about the fact that we are on mission. We must know our mission. And I couldn't help but think about this the other day as my wife and I were watching an episode of Star Trek. We are not Trekkies. To be clear, we don't go to conventions and dress up. But we do quite enjoy the show. We've even watched the original series with all the bad costumes that go along with it. We were watching The Next Generation, and there is this episode where this tiny little alien ship that has no real firepower can do one thing. And the one thing it can do is it wipes the computer banks and everyone's memory on the ship. So the Enterprise wakes up, they don't know who they are, and they don't know their mission. This alien then teleports himself on the ship and disguises himself as one of the crew and encourages him to go after this alien race called the Lustians. Now, the Lustians are not the Enterprise's real enemy, but their computer tells them that and a crew member tells them that. So they're thinking, well, this is our real enemy, let's go after them. And he is encouraging them the whole time, attack them, attack them, attack them. And slowly they realize the Lustians are not enemy, that guy is, and they expose him as the real enemy and get him off the ship into prison. And I couldn't help but think that's exactly what Satan does to his church, to our church, it's not his church, to the church. He confuses us into thinking other things are our enemy, other people. He confuses us as to what our mission is. And that is one of the things the sermon is going to touch on today, and I believe the text is showing us. Now, Angels, demons, those things most people, in fact, believe in. They believe that there is some kind of spiritual force at work in this world. Surely we believe in God, and so we believe in a spirit. But the real question is, can those spirits, can those angels and demons affect us? There is a Canadian philosopher. His name is Charles Taylor. If you've heard of him, that's great. His book's really big, and I will never read it. But he talks a lot about this thing called disenchantment, disenchantment. Now you think enchant, like magic or something like that, but disenchantment really is about how our ancestors used to believe that there were these demons, there were these otherworldly forces that influenced us. They made us sick, or they helped us make decisions one way or another and tempted us. But nowadays, we may believe in them. I'm sure you believe in some sort of Satan, but perhaps you don't believe that he can influence your decisions. Now, I want to be clear. I'm not talking about demon possession. Christians cannot be demon-possessed. That is a promise from Christ. But I want to be clear that these things do exist, and they can tempt us. A lot of this is limited in our understanding. If you've read uh, Screw Tape Letters, is a popular treatment of this doctrine, how Satan can tempt us. But it's not just that. It's also otherworldly. He can make you sick. He can do all sorts of things. And so this is important in our recovery. But there's another step to this. And I want you to also think about the fact that these demons are at work collectively. They collectively work to get humans to do things together. Now, I know this may seem super strange, but think about a system, say, like abortion. If you think about abortion in this country, it is not just one person 
going one way and doing one thing. It's a system. It's doctors, it's clinics, it's lawmakers, it's the media. Satan uses all these together. This is what we call the world. Satan uses all of this to build a system that the Bible calls the world. It is a sinful, broken system, and he uses it to oppress Christians and oppress the mission of the church. So that is our real enemy, and that is one of the things I believe the text is showing us. It's also showing us what happens when we confront that system. It's showing us that as Christians, when we confront the system, when we go after these demons and these powers, when we try to obstruct what they are trying to do in the world to keep people from seeing Christ, persecution happens. And this is a hard reality that I believe is becoming more and more real in the lives of Christians, and especially around the world, but particularly in places where Christianity has not been persecuted, like Europe or the United States. But there's good news. The good news, of course, is that Christ has already triumphed over these demons and powers. And moreover, our persecution, the things that we suffer as Christians, actually God uses to build his church and to draw people to himself. Just as Christ was suffering so others could be free, so we could be free. So we are called to suffer so that others may know freedom. And this is your key truth in your bulletin if you want to follow along. Because Christ suffered, so we would be set free. A Christian is free to suffer and follow the way of Jesus so others may be set free by the Spirit from our real enemies, sin, the flesh, and the devil. And if you have a pen, I want you to do one other thing for me. Instead of sin, can you cross sin out and put the world, the world. So again, because Christ suffered, so we would be set free. A Christian is free to suffer and follow the way of Jesus, so others may be set free by the Spirit from our real enemies, sin, the flesh, and the devil. So let's read our text. I'm going to be reading verses 16 through 18, and then we'll get to our first point. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. I want to point out a couple weird things about this text, I think. First of all, divination. What does that mean? Well, if you go on and you drive 192 you will see a lot of signs for people doing fortune-telling, tarot cards, those things. Divination is sort of like the flip side of what prophecy is. Prophecy is by God's Spirit where people, especially in the Old Testament, spoke what was going to happen in the future sometimes, but more it was forth-telling. Divination is where people come and they want to know what's going to happen to them, or they want to divine or figure out what the Spirit is telling them. Now, God forbids this very specifically, so this spirit is having this woman do something that is not allowed in Scripture. But it is something, as I'm sure you know, that people are willing to pay a lot of money for. Divination is something people want to know the future. We are frail, weak little people sometimes, and we want to know what's going to happen. Is my baby going to live? Is my car going to break down next week? These are things that we want to know. So Satan gave this woman a spirit of divination, but then he also put this woman uh, in a system of owners who owned her. Now, this obviously is demonic. We should call it what it is. Owning people is not according to God. God does not want us to own people. So not only is she 
owned, but she is being used for gain. And this is that system, again, that I called the world. It is not just one person on her own. She is part of a bigger web of corruption and sin. And that is an important thing to know. So the first thing to know when we think about that is that, in fact, the girl is not the enemy. Now, the girl is annoying, quote Paul, but she is not the enemy. The spirit is. She is not the one willingly doing this, although she is responsible for it. She is not the one willingly doing it. It is the spirit that is causing her to do it. Also, note the words. Are the words themselves bad? No, they are not even incorrect. These men are servants of the Most High God. That's true. Who proclaim to you the way of salvation. That's also true. But it is the fact that she is doing this. And when is she doing it? She's doing it as they're going to a place of prayer. So I think one of the first principles that we can draw out of this is the fact that Satan and these forces often go after us when we're trying to do our spiritual duties. We're trying to do the things that God commands us to do. If you're a father, you may find this to be a reality when you're trying to lead devotions. If you're a mother, you may find it a reality when you're doing homeschooling or trying to talk to your kids about Christ. If you're a pastor, I know Pastor BJ has said that often he encounters a lot of persecution, sleepless nights, nightmares, the day before church. Satan goes after us when we are trying to do the things that God calls us to do. But it's more than that, I think, and I realized this yesterday when I was reading a book by Martin Luther. It's specifically prayer that the Spirit goes after. It's trying to get Paul to stop from praying. Why is praying so terrible to Satan? Well, think about it. Praying is where we acknowledge our need. Praying is where we acknowledge to God, hey, we need your help. Can we conquer Satan on our own? No, we really can't. We could probably make a good sermon on our own by our own strength with our brains and our intellect. We could probably do devotions. But praying is specifically the thing where we acknowledge a higher power and ask for help versus these forces. So, of course, that's exactly what Satan wants to stop. And so he tries to stop it. But in that, we should remember this is point number one then. Point number one is a Christian should remember the true enemy. A Christian should remember the true enemy. The true enemy is not the girl. She is not the enemy. Paul does not want to get rid of the girl. He wants to get rid of the spirit because the spirit is the one causing this whole thing. The spirit is the one that's causing her to be enslaved because she's enslaved so they can make money off of her. So the spirit is the enemy and in turn then Satan is the true enemy. Moreover, we again should expect persecution from these forces as we follow Jesus. In my own life, I was thinking about this. When I was a camp counselor for inner city kids, I worked with this eight-year-old boy. His name was James. And we were told that they were not allowed to sleep in other cabins. They were organized by age, and they had to stay in that age group. And I'm not really sure 100% of the policy, but I trusted the wisdom of the guy who ran the camp, so I submitted. And this little boy, James, every night said, hey, Mr. Joe, can I go sleep with my cousin in cabin three, where the 11 and 12-year-olds were? Now, why did James want to do this? James wanted to do this because something terrible in his life was happening back home. I don't know what it was, but James did not feel safe when he was alone in bed at night. So James wanted to be with his cousin because his cousin offered protection. 
But every night, I had to tell James, no, you are not allowed to go to your cousin's bed. And finally, on the last night, James freaked out. James absolutely lost it, and we were told, if ever a child lost it like that, to restrain them. Why restrain them? Well, we were in the middle of the Pennsylvania woods, and his home was 45 minutes by car away, i.e. James is not finding his way home, and it would be very bad press if a kid got lost in the woods. So we were told to restrain him. So I started to restrain James and held him back. I restrained James for an hour and a half. That is not natural. I don't, um, I'm, I'm 30 now. Back then I was 22, and I was a little skinnier. I've since on put some weight since, since I got married to this lovely woman. She feeds me very, very well. But I was not uh, as tall as I am now. I probably weighed 20 pounds less, something like that, to be generous. And I held James for an hour and a half. I don't know if you've ever seen an eight-year-old. Eight-year-olds are not big. Think of a third grader. They're about this big, if that. They might even be smaller. And James fought me for an hour and a half. And James fought me especially when I said, I love you, because I did. I loved James. I cared for him very deeply. I, he fought even harder when I said, Jesus loves you. He fought harder. Why? There was something at work in that little boy that is not natural. There was something at work that was keeping him from accepting Christ, that was keeping him in the situation, and it was oppressing him. It was keeping him from freedom in Christ. And by the way, that hour and a half, the only reason I stopped is because somebody else came to do it for me. So I actually don't know how long James fought, probably till he passed out. I am not 100% sure, but that is not natural. And when that story shows me is James is not my enemy. James is the little sweet boy who needs Christ. He needs freedom in Christ. He needs a new identity. He needs to get out of his situation. What the enemy is, is the spirit who is behind him, who is behind the inner city life he was living, who is maybe tempting and causing whatever was happening in bed to him at night. That was the enemy. James was not my enemy. And I think this is important for all of us to think about. Our real enemy is Satan. If you look at 2 Corinthians 4.4, you don't have to flip there in your Bible necessarily, but it has this interesting phrase. Who keeps people from knowing Christ? It says the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. The God of this world is Satan. He is the one in charge of this corrupt system that the Bible calls the world. And he is the one who is blinding them from Christ. He is the one who is keeping them from knowing Christ. So when we preach the gospel, our mission is against that enemy and not against the person that we're talking to. And I'll continue to draw this point out a little bit as we go forward. So, as we confront these powers, as we confront these demons on our mission, as we confront these spirits, we follow the example of Christ and Paul. But I want you to see another aspect of our mission as we move forward. Let's read the second half of verse 18. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Point of clarification. If you look here, it says, Paul, having become greatly annoyed, said. So, annoyed. That's not a word that we tend to think of as a positive emotion, correct? If you're annoyed at somebody, it's because your little boy won't stop screaming or won't stop asking for something, or it's your dog who won't stop barking. 
Annoyed is not really a good reaction. So was Paul genuinely annoyed? I think that this translation is a little off. And I think this translation is a little off because the word more means grieved. Paul is not annoyed at the girl. He is annoyed, remember, true enemy. He is annoyed at the system. He is annoyed and grieved at the system. In fact, if you read the King James Version, it says grieved. And I think that's exactly right. He's not annoyed at her. He knows by the Spirit, he knows who the real enemy is. So he is annoyed. And I couldn't help but think at a similar situation. If you know the story of Jesus and Lazarus, you know Jesus goes, after waiting a couple days, he goes and he confronts Mary and Martha to do the work of raising Lazarus from the dead. And the text has this interesting phrase. It, in fact, says that Jesus is angry. What is Jesus angry at? Is Jesus angry at Mary and Martha? No. How do we know that? He loved them. He was not angry at them. Is Jesus angry at Lazarus? Well, he's dead, so it's probably not him. What Jesus is, in fact, angry at, death is not our fault after all, what Jesus is probably angry at is the situation. He is angry at death. He is angry at the system of death that caused Lazarus to die. Moreover, it is that system of death that led him to this moment where he came to earth to do away with. And he is angry because he knows as he confronts this system, as he confronts Lazarus' death, raises him from the dead, that's going to be the miracle where the Jewish rulers go. This guy's got to go. That's going to be the final straw. Jesus knows all that in the moment, and he is angry at the system at work here. But we see something else here. How do Jesus and Paul in that situation engage with the system? What do they do? They speak. They speak. I think this is something we often miss in Scripture, but speaking is the way that we fight. Speaking is what we use in our fight. Jesus says to Lazarus, come out. He speaks. When there's a demon, as in this case, Paul speaks. What sword do we fight with? The sword of the Spirit, which is the what? The word. Words. It's not a literal sword. In fact, when people pull out literal swords in Scripture, especially in the New Testament, they're told to put them away. They speak. One other place where you see this that's very important is in the book of Revelation. Now, a couple years ago, there were a bunch of pastors who, in overreaction to the, I call them the hippie Jesus of the 70s and 60s with long flowing hair and it was kind of effeminate, they said, no, Jesus is coming back on a horse. He's got a tattoo on his arm and a sword. It's like, oh, it's super manly Jesus. But where is the sword coming from? The sword is coming from his mouth. He slays his enemies by words. Slays his enemies by words. And that is what we are called to do. Our fight is not primarily with physical weapons, but with our words. We speak truth. We speak life into situations. And that is how we fight the demons and the spirits opposing us, the world, the flesh, and the devil, and so advance the mission. I was thinking about this the other day as I heard from a friend a story about Rollins College. Now, I don't know if you know about colleges these days, but colleges are pretty contentious places. If you know anything about Christian groups especially, they are often being kicked off campus because of what they believe. And there's various things, and you can ask me more about this later, but there's various things that cause this to happen. And there was a girl at Rollins College who came to my friend and said that she wanted to lead a Bible study, but she was living in open sin. So the right thing to do and the good thing was for him to say, no, I'm sorry, you can't lead a Bible study. Well, what did she do? 
she went to the administration, pointed out how he was bigoted and the whole ministry was bigoted, and they were booted off campus. Now, the reaction, oftentimes, sadly enough, for Christians in that situation is to go to litigation, go to the law, say, hey, we have rights, we demand them, they fight as the world fights. My friend did not do that. My friend instead spoke. He met with the administrators year after year for two or three years, just met with them. They asked questions about Christianity. He told them the truth, and he clarified some of the misconceptions that he held, they held. He even told me, funnily enough, he wanted them to see how weird Christianity was because then they're just like, well, I don't know what you believe then. And eventually, through this loving, through this speaking, through this slow patience, guess what happened? Rollins College let them back on campus. Rollins College let them back on campus just this past year. And I think that's a great example for us. I think one of the issues today, and something I think the Word has for us, is that we need to watch how we engage with the world, especially online. I am guilty of this, and I'll share a story with a second, but we need to watch how we engage online. We need to watch to make sure that the cross is the thing that offends people, not us. We can't just get online and speak truth to power or own the libs. We have to be careful with our words. We can't just be offensive for the sake of being offensive. It's okay to be political. In fact, we're called to be political. But remember, those are people, and sometimes they're people who don't know Christ. And what is most important is that they come to know Christ. What's most important is that we are not offensive, but our message is. Our message is offensive. It's a stumbling block. Should we be offensive then? Not necessarily. Now, I understand as we poke and prod people's idols and their sin, there's going to be some pushback. But that should be done in relationship. It shouldn't be done online as we throw arrows and spears at each other online and try to get at the Republicans or the Democrats for how dumb or how stupid they are, especially if they're not Christians. So we are called to remember our true enemy and watch how we witness. Now, to share a story, I screwed up at this. I did. I'm not standing up here as somebody who's perfect at this. I shared an article that was in very poor taste. I shared an article talking about how people who can't have kids, what they do is they get pets, and then they front load all that affection that they're supposed to have on pets, on children, on pets. So they care for these pets way too much. I mean, trust me, we live near Celebration and we see dogs in strollers. So this is a thing. It's a legitimate thing. But the issue is how the article was written. It was written in a very offensive and confrontational tone. And it wasn't something that was spoken in relationship. And so I posted this article. And at the time, I worked at Disney. And there were a lot of people who had pets who could not have children. Could not because of work, because of so many circumstances. And all I did was offend. All I did was hurt. And that was not OK. In fact, I got a message from a friend who does ministry at Disney and said that people were not willing to talk to him about Christianity anymore. They were now closed off. They said, I don't want to talk about this anymore. It was because of something I did or said. So all that to say is just be careful. Ask if what you're posting is encouraging and uplifting, if it's being offensive or rude, and find time to talk about those things with people in dialogue, in discussion, face-to-face, -face, not through avatars online. I think that's something that we can learn from this text. But I also want to be careful because I want you to understand that even as you do this, you may still cause anger and frustration. Because, as we see in this text, as we engage the world in our real enemy, you encounter persecution. It's just a reality. 
So I'm not, I'm not saying that we shouldn't say truth or we shouldn't speak truth, but I am saying there's a time and a place for it. And as we'll see here, as Paul speaks truth, as he speaks appropriately and follows the way of Jesus, persecution happens. Let's look at verses 19 through 24. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. There are a couple of key things I want you to understand from this, but let's do our key point here, point number three. Persecution will come as God changes hearts and minds through our preaching the gospel, and because in that, the world is in fact turned upside down. Persecution will come as God changes hearts and minds through our preaching the gospel, because in that, the world is turned upside down. Now, something that this text is really interesting in pointing out is how our preaching the gospel is an economic activity. It has effects in the marketplace. After all, once this girl stops having the spirit, the hope of gain is gone. They have no way to make money. Now, you might think this is far away for us, but it's not. As you preach the gospel, as people's hearts are changed, as you progress in sanctification, it changes what you watch. It might even change what you buy. Maybe you don't buy things from Walmart anymore, made in Bangladesh in deplorable conditions for any person made in the image of God to work with. Maybe it changes what meat you buy because now you want to take care of the animals. All these things can change. So the gospel, as it enters a person's heart by the Spirit, it does change our economic activity. And because of that, we should obviously anticipate and expect persecution because there's one thing a lot of people in the world care about. It is money. And as we disrupt those systems, people will notice and there will be persecution. So persecution, then, may also be public and painful. So notice here what happens to Paul and his team. They are dragged in public, they are stripped, and they are beaten. All of this happens to Paul and his team. And I have to ask this question because I think this is something I'm not prepared for. I am not a father, per se, quite yet. But I often wonder, like, would I be willing to lose my family? Now, you may think that'll never happen in the United States of America. Well, in Germany, just this past year, there was a family that homeschooled. And the state there has decided that all students must be in public school. So what did the state do? The state took the kids, separated the families because of their homeschooling, which, of course, is based off of their belief in Christ. So that's not far away. It's not far away for us to think that this won't have to happen to us eventually. Persecution is coming in the United States. Pastor BJ has addressed this before. Are you willing to face this persecution? Are you willing to look awkward? We were just at a conference the other day, my wife and I, and we were hanging out with a bunch of people who were not Christians. And it was awkward. <laughs> And we could obviously join in with them and their jokes and whatever, but dishonor the name of Christ. But we have to ask, are we willing to look weird so that Christ may be honored and people may come to know him? That is a worthwhile question to ask. My wife is a great example in this because you have to understand persecution, again, 
the pattern. Persecution is where we suffer so that others could be set free. And my wife is a great example of this. She was in Cambodia doing a mission trip. And she was reaching a very, very uh, specific group of people. She was re reaching sex workers. Now, sex workers, obviously, if they become a Christian, what happens? They leave their jobs. That's usually what happens if they have the means to. So this ministry, she would preach to them, she would go where they were, and she would try to reach them with the gospel. And then the ministry would step in, and they would support them and help them find new jobs. So how did the men who own these women feel about this? They did not like it. They did not like it. And so people in these places have to be careful and have encountered persecution. Because if the gospel is preached to them, they find new life in Christ. Becky does, did this and still does this in a lesser extent because she wanted them to have new life. She had experienced herself. Christ had set her free. So she was willing to suffer so that others may be set free. And this is the example that we have and we should follow that we have in Christ. Because, as we see in that story and in Becky's story, as she reached these sex workers, this is economic. This disrupts the world, the system of brokenness, and so there is persecution. And I'm not 100% sure a lot of us are ready for this. I know, I know a lot of times we thank God for this country where we are allowed to worship publicly. But are we really, really, truly appreciative and ready of what could come? And what empowers us to do that? What makes us ready for persecution? It's knowing the gospel. Only in knowing the gospel can we actually be ready for persecution. Only in knowing how Christ was exiled and sent out of the camp so that we could know freedom can we actually do this. Can we actually confront the world and the powers that work in the world and so reach them with the freedom of Christ. And I love how this is all tied together in Colossians chapter 2. If you turn with me to Colossians chapter 2, this passage ties in everything. It's Colossians 2, verses 13 through 15. And you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. So that's everybody outside Christ. That is the sex workers that Becky was trying to reach. That is the girl in this story that's your friend that doesn't know Christ. Everybody who doesn't know Christ is dead in their trespasses and the uncircumcision of their flesh. They are separated from Christ. Whatever situation they're in, they are separated. The real enemy is the one separating them. And these who were dead, God made alive together with him. So that's us. God made us alive together with Christ. How? Having forgiven us all our trespasses. How is that possible? How can we have freedom? How can we who were dead possibly ever have freedom? Let's continue. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. So Christ went after the real enemy. He didn't punish us, but he found the real enemy and went after it. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So the way that others find freedom is offered by the suffering of others. Christ suffered for us, so we have to be willing to suffer for others. But see how this passage then ties in this other component, that of the powers and principalities that work in this world. Look at verse 15. By going to the cross, by dying, he disarmed the rulers and authorities, which is the Pauline term for these powers, and put them to open shame by triumphing over him. So as we go out, as we reach the world with Christ, as we preach the gospel, as we speak truth in life, we should encounter persecution and resistance. But we should always remember the gospel. 
remember Christ suffered for us. But also, what I think is most interesting is we are united to him, and he suffers with us. Remember the story I had them read Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or I think it's Shad, Me, and Benny, or something like that in VeggieTales. I grew up Catholic, so I didn't get to watch it. But, that's true, actually. But in that story, who's in the fire? There's three, and then another man. Who's that other man? Most commentators believe that's Christ. Christ not only gives us an example, he's not only the one that we look to in that pattern of suffering for the freedom of others, but he's also with us. He suffers with us. And that, I believe, is the good news of the gospel that empowers us to reach this lost and broken world. So we can suffer. Christian, you are free to suffer. You have everything in Christ. You are free to suffer so others may be set free, so others may come to know him and have new life and identity in him. Would you go ahead and bow your heads and pray with me? Most gracious and heavenly Father, I'm blown away um, by your grace every day. It astounds me that I could be up here, Lord, that all these people you have saved, you have chosen, and we're just so appreciative. We praise you for your grace. Thank you for the suffering of Christ, who is willing to suffer so we might know freedom, so we might have life in him. And I pray, Lord, that you would empower us to be on mission for you, that you would empower us to confront these things. Would you give us discernment in knowing our true enemy, in confronting our true enemy, and reaching this lost and broken world with the good news of Christ. We praise things in Jesus' name. Amen.